And I'm going to get started with um, an acknowledgement of country. Um, the land that I'm standing on is Yukonbeer country, but I'm also standing on our home planet um, and her breathtaking majesty, of which I'm in awe of every day. Um, I'd like to acknowledge the elders of this land, past and present, and also the elders of our collective journey to coming to this point, including my mentor of some 30 years, Buckminster Fuller. I'd like to acknowledge the creatures um, that have been exploited, extinguished, um, and those still living in systems of exploitation, extraction um, to extinction of colonization. I'd like to look to our future, a more beautiful world our hearts know is possible, where centropic enterprises, um, all human endeavors, leave everything better. I acknowledge the presence um, of all of you and your commitment to this work. Uh, many of you I know, and the commitment is um, extraordinary. And a particular thank you to Jonathan and Sarah for gifting your time, not just to today, but the life work that you have done towards this future. Thank you. Uh, Jonathan, um, we'll, we'll be bringing him on um, soon, but um, reading his book, Hope in Hell, uh, uh, chapter eight, feedback loops and ticking, tipping points, uh, he made a quote from Bucky Fuller and I just referenced Bucky Fuller. Nature is totally efficient, self-regenerating, is a totally efficient self-regenerating system. If we discover the laws that govern the system and live synergistically within them, sustainability will follow and humankind will be a success. If I could summarize the work of what we do at Syntropic World, that is the, that is the summary. And, uh, and for those of you who haven't um, experienced our, um, the work that we do in the community, it is really uh, from the place of, rather than uh, changing the existing systems, building new models that make the existing obsolete, which is another quote from Bucky. And so really focusing on that future. And the word syntropy was a term coined by Bucky Fuller, which is the opposite to entropy. And entropy, of course, is the second law of thermodynamics, which is that we are in a degenerative universe. And Bucky always um, posited and demonstrated mathematically and geometrically as well that we are in a syntropic universe, an eternally regenerative universe. And so uh, when I was looking at, um, after many years in this, this sort of domain, at how we come together as humans, to create enterprises, any human endeavor. So whether it's uh, uh, covered by a legal um, representation or it's people coming together in a garage or it's a family group or community, any human endeavor, how do we do that in a way that is centropic? And I knew that what I had to do was to, to, to use a different language set to describe this, to completely and absolutely have it stand out as different to uh, our current models of business. And so what we do um, in the world of Centropic um, is uh, we're looking at applying the laws inherent in nature to enterprise design and human coordination and uh, taking um, a, the uh, first principle that we are nature and that if we honor how nature works, including us, and use that as our guide rather than the human constructed systems that have got us in the terrible mess um, that we are in environmentally and socially and geopolitically and so on, uh, that we might have this world with a future.
So that's just a little bit of a background to um, the work that we do. And what I've been doing in these calls because um, is you know um, giving people a little taste of that, then introducing our wonderful guest and then having uh, one of the Centropic alumni, in this case, Sarah Scott from Tanzania, present the work that they're doing and how they're applying this. Um, holding the frame that this is a community of practice and um, that we don't have all the answers, um, but we work together very much um, in order to create that. And so to that point, the, the sort of the short little piece that I'm going to do today, um, and then there'll be a little Q&A before we introduce um, Jonathan, is um, the distinction between the animating idea and the, the purpose for which we're here. And so in a, in a really simple form, all of us um, have many ideas. It can be as simple as making a peanut butter sandwich. And, uh, and so the idea needs to animate us to act because any idea uh, is, is a seed of potential. It, uh, it requires uh, activation and engagement by people and things and creatures and so on and the environment and the ecology in order for it to come to life. And so um, part of the principle that we work with around Centropic is that an idea that is uh, able, uh, that is going to animate you to act towards a world with a future. So a beautiful, precious idea has intrinsic to it what Bucky would call pattern integrity. So it has a particular set of qualities and values that are intrinsic and present at the moment the idea lands. So let me, to, to just sort of help with what, you know, what is pattern integrity? Um, if you take a rope, a regular rope like this, and you tie a knot in it, just that reg regular, way that we were told to tie a knot like that. Everyone can see that it, whether we use a rope, a piece of string, a um, piece of my hair, uh, whatever mechanism we use, that that pattern of the action that I took is common in all of those experiences. So the human body is a pattern integrity of uh, what happens, the miracle that happens in a human body, any life is a pattern integrity of the miracle of that creation point. And so an idea just like a child or a human uh, has at the moment of its inception, this imprint pattern integrity that, that if we dishonor that, then we're actually, uh, we're actually violating the very thing that we're trying to um, hold and create. And we know this if we're parents or if we take care of animals or creatures, because each creature, each child that is born has this beautiful pattern integrity there from day one. And so a source idea um, is something to be, it's a precious thing and it's something for us to really take care of uh, um, in the most profound way and to be in communion with it. Um, you could even say that as stewards of planet Earth, of spaceship Earth, uh, we intrinsically as humans might be awakening to the fact that we are to um, steward and protect the pattern integrity of planet Earth in, in everything that we do. And that is indeed an intrinsic part of what we do in Centropic Enterprise. 
And so this idea lands for us and uh, it could be expressed in a thousand different ways. A child that has a beautiful intrinsic music capacity um, might not necessarily be a pianist or a violinist. They could be a rapper or whatever it is. There's many different ways that that can be expressed. But our job as the steward is to create an ecology or an environment around which that child, the pattern integrity, the source idea can come to its fullest potential. And so circling back to Bucky's work, you know, he and that quote from um, that Jonathan used in um, his book is that uh, humans hopefully in time are awakening to the idea, to the thought that we have a necessary and needed function in universe every single one of us, all creatures, earth and all her creatures. And that if we were to honor our own pattern integrity in support of the pattern integrity of earth and universe and the future, uh, then this is kind of the encapsulation of what we're doing in Centropic world. Our purpose, just to give you the distinction. So we have the idea and we have the purpose. Our purpose, our purpose is something that is that frontier that holds us in this direction. And so the purpose for Centropic uh, world is that Centropic enterprises, human endeavors that leave everything better for having existed uh, is the way we engage. That it is not the uh, vast exception as it is at the moment, but actually the way that we engage in doing things. So we are rethinking everything from legal to governance to currency to flows to how you account for value to how you coordinate humans. I mean, it's a very ambitious project. Um, as I said, we don't have all the answers, but we're rethinking, you know, that because um, and focusing on that versus on how to rearrange the deck chairs on the current system, the Titanic. And so holding this purpose and having the source idea um, creates a trajectory of movement, a directionality. And uh, when, when the incumbency, the incumbent systems and the multiple systems that any enterprise, any human engagement, anything that we do um, that we have to deal with uh, is uh, there is a huge vested interest for multiple reasons. And Jonathan covers much of this in his um, book um, to pull us back into this old system. And so the escape velocity to get out of that, that entrenched um, system requires an incredible community, which is why Centropic, we have a community of practice, but re it requires incredible um, clarity of this directionality and purpose. And when, this, when the source idea and its pattern integrity and the purpose are aligned this creates what we call a vector of power, um, and that is a transmission. So you know when you come across people that are in this space because the way they engage with the world and what they're doing is more powerful um, and it comes through them than pretty much anything that they say or do. Uh, and so there are a couple of 
companies that, um, not many, but a couple of companies and so on that are committed to this. Um, and you can hear when people speak that this is not lip service, it's something for which they're giving their, dedicating their lives. And so um, I have referenced in previous um, companies like Outland Denim and James Bartle, who is, um, uh, whole purpose is to end modern slavery. The company like Patagonia, who for years has demonstrated their commitment to this. So that's just give you the distinction. Um, I have got a, um, a, um, a couple of a moment for a couple of questions before we introduce Jonathan. If anyone's got any questions, um, please just um, raise your hand or unmute yourself and ask away. And yep, anyone at all? Shy? No questions. <laughs> I must have been very brilliant in my um, <laughs> presentation. <laughs> All right. Um, cool. Well, that is, I'm very happy about that because that gives us a little bit longer with Jonathan. Christine, I could say one thing. Yes. Not yes. more question, but when you talked about honor the pattern, yeah. it's almost like we've moved into uh, this loop of honoring thy father and thy mother, et cetera, et cetera. But if you think of it as the source of you, then it's actually the parent is the source. Yeah. So the truth is there until we confuse ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Thank you, Ima. Anyone else? Good. All right. So Jonathan, aren't we honored to have uh, a, a true pioneer activist advocate for Earth, for the environment, joined the Green, Greens Party in 1974. Um, Friends of the Earth, and you can correct me enough, I've got some of these wrong. Friends of the Earth, 1980, um, uh, you know, part of the founding of the prime, um, the, uh, Prince of Wales uh, Business and Sustainability Project, um, and also the Cambridge Institute for Sustainable Leadership, the chair of the UK Sustainable Development Commission, and uh, one of the founders of um, the Forum for the Future. Uh, so Jonathan has dedicated his life, you could easily say that, to uh, our precious and amazing Earth and her creatures. And so thank you, Jonathan. It's a pleasure and um, thank you very much for the introduction and the invitation. I'm delighted to be joining you for a little bit of time uh, this morning, whatever time of day it is um, for you, wherever you are in the world. Um, to be honest, it's a rather wonderful morning to be waking up on because the news is full of what the new president, Joe Biden, and the new vice president, Kamala Harris, have been doing in the few, in few hours since they took over the uh, US administration and it's pretty much all upside and I love a morning that starts off with all upside uh, not least the decision of course for the USA to re-enter the Paris Agreement and to put America's shoulder to the wheel of addressing climate change but there was something about the tone there was something about the way in which they both spoke uh, yesterday during the inauguration procedures it was just a uh, so refreshing and inspiring to start listening to some intelligent and sensitive 
empathetic voices in the US in terms of the, the next four years. So for me, that was great and a real uplift against a backdrop that obviously is still very oppressive for an awful lot of people in many countries all around the world. And we can't turn away from that. And a lot depends now on how quickly we can move forward this sort of more purposeful addressing of these crises, whether they are the crises of our relationship with the natural world in terms of climate change or all the threats to uh, biodiversity, or whether they're the kind of socioeconomic crises that we're also finding ourselves in the midst of, a world still massively scarred by astonishing levels of inequality, uh, both economic inequality and racial inequality, uh, on which we've made relatively little progress as we can see from, uh, from America today. The great thing about the Biden-Harris proposition, and it is a really remarkable proposition, I spent quite a lot of time looking at their election campaign and what they were calling for in the context of climate change and the environment. And this notion of a new deal, which of course resonates incredibly strongly in the USA, resonates quite strongly here in the EU as well these days, because we have a great big, quite exciting, dynamic European Green Deal, which is important. But in America, the New Deal, the Roosevelt New Deal, has an enormous amount of historical resonance. And what Biden and Harris have put together is really remarkable. It's a quite extraordinary proposition, not just because there's a big dollar price tag attached to it. it the two trillion is quite a lot of investment in different ways of creating wealth and rebuilding communities in the USA. But because of its absolutely unapologetic focus on doing this in ways that help to heal both the ecological and the social damage done over many, many years in the USA. And I'll come back to that in a moment. So this is a, a, a really a shot in the arm for people who understand the true significance of 2021. I know you can always overdo this. Every year is important, let's be honest. And we all love to play the, the card that says this year is more important than any other year. But there's sort of some truth in this one because we know that we have to do pretty much all the difficult things that need to be done by 2030 if we're going to have a chance of building uh, the world we want and creating a stable climate and so on. We have to do that by 2030, the heavy lifting. That means halving emissions of greenhouse gases by 2030, an astonishingly ambitious and problematic thing to kind of contemplate, halving the emissions. So we're roughly at 40 billion tonnes annual emissions at the moment by 2030 we have to be much closer to 20 billion tons it's a it is an incredible thing to kind of wrap your mind around it really is so we know 2021 is critical because that will create the conditions for the next decade the year ends of course with the big conference of the parties as they're called this big climate conference in glasgow um, at the end of the year and you can see how an awful lot of things are beginning to shape up for that and for the challenge entailed in that. The incredible thing is, it really is happening. This quickening pulse is all around us. And I can't tell you actually in a short talk just what this acceleration in these transformative processes feels like. It's utterly remarkable. A lot of it is driven by technology. I can't turn away from that. There are some absolutely revolutionary things going on 
in terms of the technologies now available to us to build the foundations of this very different kind of economy. And we still have to do that. However much we may feel we're, as you put it, we're sometimes moving the deck chairs. We still have to do what needs to be done to keep our economy on track for the billions of people who depend on current systems of generating wealth, creating value. So this revolution, particularly in solar technology, other renewable energy technologies, particularly wind, in quite boring areas of technology like storage. Like nobody seems to get excited about storage and batteries, but you should all be utterly excited about what is happening in that field of human endeavor as technology breakthrough on battery and storage technology. These are extraordinary shifts happening at a speed that almost nobody can imagine. They're not rich world shifts. These are shifts that will actually impact on the lives of every citizen on planet Earth. Just thinking of what we're going to hear about in a moment in terms of some of the impacts of this in Africa. The solar energy story is so important for Africa. It does create the opportunity for decentralized off-grid and on-grid energy systems at an affordable price, which will transform the lives of hundreds of millions of people across the African continent. So these things are really important. They are moving so fast. I am finding it really difficult just to keep track of this transformative process. The floodgates of innovation are open. And when you create this moment where everybody, and I mean now everybody, understands that we're in a very different context to make sense of our human destiny, then innovation is a extraordinary force to behold. And in my opinion now, it will mean that one of those incumbencies, and we, we heard a bit about the importance of incumbency just a moment ago, that one of the big incumbencies that we're still stuck with, which is the incumbency of the fossil fuel industries, that incumbency will be overcome in the next decade. We will have freed ourselves from our incumbent dependency on fossil fuels within a decade. I mean, that, honestly, that is pretty startling. So for me, there's just a sense of, I call it this quickening, because it's not that these ideas haven't been out there before. It's not that people haven't been interested before. It's not that there haven't been opportunities, um, both from a political and a financial perspective before. They've all been there for decades. But right now, you can see how this is beginning to unfold very, very differently indeed. Now. You will all know on a call like this that there is a lot more to this than technology. That's just the precursor, if you like. It is the condition that makes a lot of other things possible. But there's so much more to what is happening than just the technology, which is why I mentioned the Harris, Kamala Harris, Joe Biden climate plan. It's more Kamala Harris's plan, by the way, than it is Joe Biden's. And we'll we'll see that a lot over the course of the next four years because it's her who has injected into that plan the central element of climate justice. And it's a remarkable document and a remarkable affirmation of the possibility of doing the right thing socioeconomically by addressing the sustainability, the ecological challenges that we have to address. So to give you just a simple example, there's a pre-commitment in the plan it still has to be firmed up, obviously, but there's a pre-commitment that out of whatever the expenditure will be on creating a low carbon economy in the USA, 40% of that 
expenditure, 40% of the $2 trillion, will be directed explicitly towards those communities that have suffered disproportionately as a consequence of the environmental damage done over the last few decades. So particularly communities of color, particularly communities of disadvantaged people who've just been left behind by the industrial economy. I consider that to be absolutely critical, making sure that a climate justice story, it takes the front line, if you like, is right out there, not just a climate transition, a, a story about new technology, but doing it with justice absolutely embedded within it is the only way, I mean this, the only way in which we will be able to bring people with us on this unbelievably fast ride that we are now on. If we don't bring people with us, we don't make it inclusive, if we don't address what have often been called the the left behind, I don't mind what terminology you use, but all of those people who have not been beneficiaries of our mad grab it and run kind of global economy over the last 40 years, if we don't build them into this vision of what a different world looks like, we won't be able to get there because the opposition, the, the sense that this isn't for us, this is something that's been foisted upon us, we don't see how this is going to help us and our communities and make life better for us. So this is absolutely uh, critical for me. And the great thing is, although we're still in the midst of a devastating pandemic um, and people calculating the cost now uh, in a very different way than they did a, a year ago when we didn't really understand the full extent of this. Incredible the situation in America. They're waking up now to the fact that the number of people who died in America is equivalent to the number of people who died through the Second World War in terms of the support that America put into that necessary endeavor. And it's for me remarkable to think that we now need to relearn some of the lessons of the pandemic. They're important lessons. And, and I just want to end on that point because it seems to me that we're still struggling to land what those lessons actually look like for ordinary people in their lives. We, we tend to go to slightly romanticized places. You know, people are still talking about the joy of reconnecting with the natural world as one of the lessons of the pandemic and for an awful lot of people that is true um, earlier this morning I went for my regular early morning walk amazingly stormy around here we have two fiercely combative territorial robins out in the front of our house here every single morning between sort of five and six o'clock they're going at each other by song I want you to know they don't, as far as I can tell they don't actually involve in any um, avian fisticuffs but it is just an unbelievable reminder of the resilience and the power of the natural world. Now, I feel that very strongly, but I am also very conscious that even here in my little town of Cheltenham in Gloucestershire in the UK, there are thousands of people in Cheltenham who are getting nothing out of this pandemic process, out of this necessity of relearning about the world. And they're certainly not reconnecting with the natural world because they can't, their living conditions don't allow for it very easily. Many people are stuck at home. Many people are doing home learning for their kids in conditions that are not as conducive to that as you might want. So it's a tough call for a huge number of people, a really tough call, um, which we need to be very much more sensitive to than sometimes we seem to be. But we have learned some critical lessons. They are landing now increasingly. They teach us that we need to think about our economy very differently. 
from the economy that preceded the COVID-19 crisis, and that if we are going to be successful in building back better, I noticed that um, that phrase is now um, not just much beloved of Boris Johnson, but also is picked up a bit by Joe Biden. If we are going to build back better, then we have to do it in ways that embrace these very different priorities for a different world. I don't doubt that we're going to be able to do that. In, in fact, it's it's disappointing so far. If you look at the the story about the trillions of dollars which will be invested in building back our economies. So far, it's not a particularly good record that we have. Uh, people are talking about 14 to 15 trillion dollars of government and central bank investment in creating new economic activity, if, if you like, not just propping up the economy through the pandemic, but ensuring that new pathways to prosperity can be created as we come out of the pandemic, whatever that may look like. At the moment, a lot of that investment is going into what I would still call the sunset industries, the industries of yesterday, the incumbency, if you like, of the fossil fuel and extractive economy. And we have to shift that in short order. We have to get that money flowing into the economic activity of the future, creating this new pattern of prosperity. Are the politicians up for that? Mm -hmm. That's the story that I tried to unfold in Hope in Hell in, the, in, in my new book. Um, we're much more aware now of what the science tells us about climate change. We're aware of what politicians are struggling to make happen now. We are beginning to hear good signals. The world is awash suddenly with net zero rhetoric about commitments to get to a net zero economy by 2050. But the gap between the science and the politics is still enormous. And for me, the the principal endeavor now in my life personally over the next few years is to do what I can to help narrow that gap and make it a realistic proposition for people um, anywhere in the world. So I'll stop there because I know we've got time for some Q&A and um, it may be um, more helpful to see if I can pick up any interest in that that you might have. Thanks. Lovely. Thank you, Jonathan. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so please, yeah, if you want to ask a question, um, just raise your hand. I can see you um, unmute and, uh, and ask away. Yeah, Paul, you want to ask a question? Um, ask a question. And, uh, and also, uh, thanks to Jonathan, by the way, for, um, for your insights. <clears throat> um, I, I, I have been working quite some time on developing a new framework for economy. I'm not an economist, and that's probably an advantage that you are now thinking differently about what a mess we made and how you can change it. Um, so what I actually did is make a combination, and it, 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 it comes down to where um, Christine started with, it's your purpose, you know? Um, I'm always asking people, individual and as a company, what, what is your purpose? Where do you want to go? And it is not the massive transformative purpose that we usually use, but inclusive massive transformative purpose. That means that we include environmental um, uh, impacts, uh, diversity, etc. So I came up with an 
with a model that 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 on one can i share my screen quickly or? well i need um we've only got a limited amount of time so this is um this is for people to ask jonathan um so, questions yeah. have. So, so if you question if you could ask him specifically otherwise we need to take it out to other people yeah. so um uh, jonathan what 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 is your focus in working on a new economy where where is your focus where is your point of gravity there well happily as i'm sure you will have um, discovered in your research for a new economy the work that precedes us in this area is enormous and the 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 kind of shoulders of those on whom today's economists now stand are are amazing and, and we can draw on that heritage for me herman daly is one of the great Eco economic gurus of our movement, who was the first one in the modern time, because obviously there are many, many economists before that, who mapped out exactly what a post-growth economy would look like, an economy that was not dependent on conventional measures of GDP and per capita income, was extremely um, absolutely focused on how you could still create prosperity for people without this manic obsession around growth per se, increases in GDP. Um, more recently, of course, we have the incredible work of Tim Jackson, who wrote this book, Prosperity Without Growth, which is, again, a wonderful primer in how you can do this business of more inclusive, and you mentioned that word, um, more empathic and compassionate ways of creating and distributing wealth. And I get a very strong sense now that many people are beginning to understand we can't simply go back to our old uh, growth-based extracted economy. We have to do this very differently. I can't say that's reflected in the current discourse in contemporary politics. You do not pick up in the build back better narratives any real sense that we need to free ourselves of that dependence on um, ecocidal growth of the kind that we know. But you can begin to see some reflections of the need to do it very differently. Thank you. Thank you. Lovely. Anyone else got a question for Jonathan? Christine, if I may. Um... Uh, yes. So this is Chandra from Zurich in Switzerland. So uh, insightful uh, and Christine, lovely to be a part of your community and join for the first time today. Uh, but going back to Jonathan, your keyword from the last answer, prosperity without growth. And this is where my question come challenge would be, I think, old days we used to say growth without prosperity or unequal growth and now we are shifting the equilibrium to say prosperity without growth uh, couldn't be landing up in a conflict of the other magnitude order we will have prosperity but not growth so why we are not targeting prosperity with growth perhaps uh, so are we going in the wrong direction perhaps in the new model well not yet i <laughs> To a certain extent, hopefully I not, but were. hopefully not. But the choice of the words matter. Yeah. Um, well, Chandra, as you will know, the, the old standby was we still have to have growth because without growth, we can't address poverty. But what we've seen is that the growth today, much of the growth that we create today actually exacerbates poverty. It actually makes the inequality worse. It makes the pattern of destruction to the natural world worse. It makes the limitations and oppressions that many people feel in their world worse so from my perspective the idea that the reason why we principally need growth is to address inequality and poverty is just a busted flush as an idea both in the rich world and the poor world i mean you look at who's actually benefited from the last 20 years of growth driven economic policy 
and it sure as hell isn't the poor. <laughs> it isn't even the middle classes. I mean, one of the most astonishing things to look at is the degree to which the middle class in America in particular has been completely hollowed out with no improvements in the material standard of living for the vast majority of the US middle classes. One of the reasons why the Trump, the politics of Trump was so successful is that he was able to appeal in this perverse way to those people who had actually lost out to that particular kind of um, growth driven extractive industry. So I'm, I'm much more robust now in pushing back on the idea that addressing poverty and inequality depends on economic growth as we have known that growth, because I don't believe that to be true. I believe we need to create growth very differently for the future. I'm into that. Thank you. <laughs> um, perhaps uh, one more quick question before we switch to Sarah. So if anyone has a question for Jonathan, amazing opportunity. Anyone at all? I will raise my hand if no one else does. <laughs> Thank you, Christine. <laughs> well, you know, um, you mentioned, so this auspicious day, um, of course, with um, seeing the end of, of a nightmare of time um, in uh, geopolitics, but um, and, and the and the push of the Biden Harris administration, we have of course um, a fossil in um, the leadership of Australia, a genuine fossil. Oh. <laughs> and so, do you see um, that people like that are um, are going to how you know maintain their their ability to have any credibility in this next couple of years? Yes, well, Christine, thank you. Um, uh, you're right. The, the, the fossil fuel incumbency is uh, pervasive in many parts of the world, and Australia has suffered disproportionately from, from that over the last few years. Um, there comes a point where even a fossil as embedded as Scott Morrison will not be able to resist the, the tide that is now engulfing uh, energy politics around the world. And it's, it's absolutely fascinating for me to see the ways in which changes in China, South Korea, Japan, in those countries will actually change Australia more than changes in Australia will change Australia. Mm. So in all of those countries, the countries on which Australia depends to sell off its natural resources, in all of those countries, we're seeing an accelerated understanding that they have to free themselves of this dependence on fossil fuels, particularly on coal. Is there a way out of the situation for Scott Morrison, who's so deeply embedded in this? Well, there is one way out only, Christine, and, and it's a sort of crazy tech fix, which many people don't really like. But Australia could be that one of the greatest producers of green hydrogen to use literally limitless renewable energy sources, which Australia has. A, you know, I've spent quite a lot of time in Australia and I love the country dearly. And I have noticed there is quite a lot of sunshine and stuff around in Australia. <laughs> The opportunity to turn these natural, these natural resources, the renewable resources, particularly the wind and solar, into cheap renewable electricity to produce the green hydrogen that industrial economies like Japan, South Korea um, and China will need um, is remarkable. And we have recently, by the way, in the last two months, very quickly seen the first steel plants opening up 
using green hydrogen instead of fossil fuels, instead of gas and coal. And these are little indicators. So in my new book, I have taken a punt on the fact that Australia will be one of the world's largest providers of green hydrogen by 2025, and will be making a ton more money out of that than out of the or coal, which can stay happily under the precious ground on which you all walk. Yeah, amen to that. <laughs> so thank you, uh, Jonathan, for um, Peter. We haven't got time for another question, unfortunately, um, as we're going to move to Sarah. Um, thank you, Jonathan. Um, the wonderful thing about um, Jonathan's book is that I just I'm just in awe of the number of books that you've know, got some behind you, but the depth of research and so on that goes behind this. So if you do not want to bury yourself in the um, amazing volume of material that um, is thoroughly um, um, put into this book, um, then I would highly recommend it. And, uh, and I've certainly got books that I want to read now as a reference from your book. Jonathan, it's amazing. So thank you for your work. And more than anything, you know, thank you just for staying at this cause for so long. And I couldn't imagine the journey, but, you know, we're grateful. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. So, <laughs> so I'm going to um, hand over to Sarah, uh, who um, is one of our wonderful Centropic um, community members um, based in Tanzania. And we have got a few people from Tanzania on the call today. Aren't we lucky? Um, so Sarah, you have the floor. Thank you. I think it's quite a hard act to follow, Jonathan. Thank you so much for your sharing. And I remember someone said to me when I started my environmental activism that it's an ultra marathon and not a hundred meter sprint. And I think you really epitomize that in the work that you've done over all these years and just continued hope. So thank you very much. And I just want to honor Christina as well for this opportunity to, to speak to you all today. Um, and the centropic journey over the last nine months has been incredible. I'm doing the class, the class for the third time, just as we begin to integrate Centropy and the Centropic practice into the enterprises that we are creating here in Tanzania. So before I start, I would love you all just to close your eyes for a moment. Um, and I would like to start by honoring Mother Nature, who is a wise and patient teacher. She has the most extraordinary ability to heal herself and the planet. Through understanding her wisdom and her cycles, the seasons, the ebbs and flows of the tides, reciprocity and our responsibility to live in harmony with nature. We are all reminded of all that we are and all that we can be if we only listen and act accordingly. Thank you. So it's a time like this when we think of humanity right now, it's not just about our own journey, but it's the journey of the entire human race. And it actually is a race and it's a race for our survival. So I'm gonna to start today with a personal story of what led me to do the work that's doing. And it was, it was initially a journey inward. It was a deep and necessary journey where I had to confront my shadows and my darkness. But what I found when I journeyed inward was a really expansive, endless deposit of love. And it's a love for humanity and a love for this planet. And this love that really drives the work that I do um, and my relationships with people and the planet. And I also realized that I had enough love to last a lifetime and enough love to share. And in that sharing, real transformation um, has begun to happen. 
So in 2016, I gave up my career in marketing. I had a film and events company um, and I decided to commit my voice uh, to Mother Nature. I, I heard her call and really commit myself to social and environmental impact and really where I was interested in where these two intersect. And it's been a wild ride ever since. And I just want to read a quote. We know that it it doesn't take every earth to bring about justice and peace. Only a small determined group who will not give up during the first, second or hundredth gale. And so I ask you all today, what are you doing? What can you do? What big or small things in, can ensure a bright and just and beautiful future that we all know is possible? So I began my environmental activism on the shores of Dar es Salaam. I moved on to a beachfront uh, property and the name of the, the nickname of this beach was Mavi Beach, which basically in Kiswahili literally means shit beach. It was filled with waste. And I approached a, a local environmental organization called Nipa Fregio, and Tanya's here on this call. And I asked them, I said to them, I wanted to become a brand ambassador to keep this beach clean. And so over the course of the time that I lived on this beachfront, I organized monthly beach cleanups. And maybe that doesn't change the systemic problem of waste. But what it does is it transforms you from the inside out, that you realize that that little bit that you can do can affect your community, activate others to act alongside of you. So that action was basically a catalyst that led me into what I like to call to greater heights, to the foothills of Kilimanjaro. In 2017, I started the Kilimanjaro project and it was an environmental and social uh, impact initiative. Initially, it was an awareness campaign uh, and a crazy art installation that we wanted to do in Kilimanjaro to raise awareness for climate change. But very soon I realized that we didn't need more climate uh, uh, awareness. What we needed was climate action. So instead of wrapping the mountain with kanga fabric, which was our installation idea, uh, we decided to wrap it with trees. So now we're, 113 trees in to hopefully what will be million of tree restoration project. But this project has really humbled me um, and I'm very different from the person I was four years ago when I started this project. I started with two pillars and I like to, I, I called them back then my flak jacket. I don't normally anymore talk in combative language, but back then I did. And my two pillars were, um, it's not personal, not everyone's gonna get what I'm doing, but I need to do it. I need to follow that inner voice that's guiding me to what I'm doing. And secondly, to keep flowing, to be like water when you reach obstacles, to find your way around or through them, but whatever you do to keep moving. So I have to admit when I started the project, I thought I would raise millions overnight. I thought it's Kilimanjaro, everyone knows it, it's trees. Um, I made a lot of noise um, and I raced ahead and I left many behind. And I'm reminded of the African proverb that says, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. And so before I got any millions or get the millions, I really had to be humbled. I had to learn a new rhythm and then that's the rhythm of nature. And it was to really slow down. And in this last year, supported by the Centropic Community of Practice and our various institutions and organizations that we're working with, it's really become what our slogan used to be, which is in Kiswahili, Tuje Pamoja, let us come together. 
we've now pivoted our slogan and it's Kijani Pamojo, which means green together. And through this entropic process, being able to build out these teams that take personal responsibility for what they do. So I'll briefly launch into um, our three uh, focus areas. Um, we have the Kilimanjaro project, which is actually an initiative now plugged in under Kijani Pamoja, a registered NGO here in Tanzania. And the Kilimanjaro's focus, um, we did a lot of like different experimentation in the first couple of years with 113,000 trees planting in river reserves, private land, schools. Um, and through that journey, it led us to a partnership with GIZ, the German Development Corporation, and what we're looking at now is doing river reserve restoration on all the rivers that flow from Mount Meru and Mount Kilimanjaro into the Pangani River Basin. Uh, this is a water stewardship program, but the need for restoration within the water reserves, uh, the river reserves, to protect the soil from erosion and, um, and also to raise the water tables that affects the lives of more than 5 million people living downstream in the Pangani Basin. That journey led us even now to the Usambara Mountains, which are part of the Eastern Arc Mountains, and now even further afield to Udzungwa. We're putting together a consortium of tree growing initiatives under this campaign umbrella of Kijani Pamoja. And our current project is 17 million trees, 10 million tons of carbon in three key hotspots in Tanzania. And this is not done just alone. We have our consortium of partners that will help make this happen. And this, this is what I've really learned in this journey is that it's really grassroots action is needed. Local capacity building, local leadership, leadership is where the deep systems change will take place. And it's really where the action is needed that will also then drive and reform policy. I'm not saying that we, we don't need policy reform. There's, there's people that work with that. But what we are needed is hundreds and thousands of people knowing how to restore degraded lands. So that also leads me into our, our youth campaign. We have a youth campaign called Kijani Pamoja, which we will launch this year. Uh, we were honored to be elected as one of the World Economic Forum One Trillion Tree cohort members of 2020, 2021. Uh, and what's that, what that really allowed us to do is really become a part of the global voice for trees uh, and restoration work and given us a seat at the table we were chosen as of one of 20 organizations of, I think, more than 250 applicants globally. So it's been a, it's also been an honor to be able to challenge the system. It talks about the great resets. What does that actually mean? What does that look like? And how can we unlock some of these resources that are stuck in the global north and allow them to flow to the much needed global south? So our youth uh, organization is kicking off this year, our youth movement in 50 schools in Dar es Salaam. We'll be growing dense mini uh, forests within schools and then hopefully be able to roll that out across the country. And it's just amazing to see the young volunteers that we have on board committing their time, their passion uh, to the environment. It, it's truly extraordinary. Um, yeah, and then, and then finally, I'll end with this. What, what I realized, this was early last year, or it, it had been brewing for a while, that our work really needed to be more rooted and grounded in science. Uh, and I was in Switzerland just before Corona last year, uh, kind of hit the travel, travel bans, and I met with the 
president of the Swiss Academy of Arts and Sciences. And it was more, we were talking more on the tree, on tree things, all things trees. But when I got back to Tanzania, I just wrote to him and I said, you know, I really see that we need a, a space for a green innovation hub. And there's land here in Arusha that I have seen and been kind of walking on for the last four years. And I painted him, I painted a picture of what I saw in this green innovation hub. And he just jumped right on board and he's like, okay, Sarah, let's go. And we've been on a nine month journey. And just this week, we have signed a partnership agreement with the Swiss Academy of Arts and Sciences and the V Center for Nature under the University of Bern. And basically what we're creating here is a demonstration hub. The, the models are out there, but what is needed now is to show them and demonstrate that they actually work. So we'll bring, bring together science uh, I kind of see a space where science uh, meets application, where scientists are hanging out with and then musicians are writing music that educates and inform people uh, and a real melting pot because I think what some of the struggles have been is that there's not been a lack of vertical integration in various sectors and to bring those together, um, you know, Let's talk about innovative technology for food systems, agriculture and nature-based solutions where people can come and learn and retreat and cross-pollinate and then go out back into their communities and drive the much needed change uh, that our world needs to see. And I think I'd love to end on the quotes again by Bucky Fuller who said, you know, we cannot change old systems. What is needed is new systems and new models that demonstrate that, uh, or that make the old ones absolute, obsolete. And that's what we hope to do, to embrace the complexity of our time and be able to come up with sustaining solutions for our future. Thank you. She's slightly busy. <laughs> we've got just a little bit busy there, Sarah. Uh, um, does anyone have, we've got a couple of minutes. We do finish right at the top of the hour. Um, so does anyone have any questions for Sarah? please um, just um, raise your hand. I can see you unmute yourself. Um, there you go, Liz, go. Hi, Sarah, thanks so much for um, sharing your story, very inspiring. Um, so my question is about how you've um, like integrated or started to use the Syntropic Enterprise model. Yeah, I give a, give a very tangible example. So we work in our schools program with um, more than 50 volunteers. And one of the uh, models within syn uh, the Syntropic Enterprise is what they call synergistic accounting. And it's a way of sharing, uh, kind of, I say sharing resources, a different type of currency. So our volunteers will sign up and, and, and describe what they're willing and able and passionate to give to the process. And in the different spheres, of which they're able to give also in what they would like as the rest of volunteer program sign up so you did cut out there yeah you cut out there a little bit sarah so um what people have the capacity willingness and desire to contribute and what they expect in return in six domains um of value each side here so that's an example liz yeah any other questions for, uh, we've got time for maybe one more for Sarah before we wrap for the day, morning, afternoon. I just have a quick comment for you, Sarah. Um, 
I'm working on a big platform for regenerative agriculture, so I need to connect with you. <laughs> so you'll see an email from me at some point because we need to work together. Yeah, we have uh, we have a few. Regenerative agriculture is definitely happening in this space. Um, Christopher Cook on the call, uh, Marion, you might want to connect with him. Uh, but we've got a lot of people in the regenerative ag community that is part of this group. So, um, any one more question from anybody? Okay, no questions. That was great. It was beautiful. You did an amazing job. <laughs> Sarah, thank you. Uh, and so I would like to take this moment. Um, I want to acknowledge Cindy. Um, thank you, Cindy. Um, Cindy facilitated the introduction to Jonathan. And uh, Jonathan, Cindy is another of our um, remarkable community members whose project Planetary World uh, is extraordinary and exquisite. And Jonathan's in, on, on the advisory of that as well. Uh, so anyone who's interested in uh, educating uh, young children um, about our planet, um, check out planetary.world. So I wanted to acknowledge Cindy. Uh, thank you so much, Jonathan. Uh, I really, really appreciate your time and um, in being here. And I humbly um, appreciate your dedication to this as a life's work. Uh, thank you, Sarah. <laughs> for your extraordinary beauty and gift that you're giving to your region and the ripples that, that will happen. And thank you everybody for being a part of this. Um, we haven't got another call scheduled, just so that you know, um, we will at some stage. Um, uh, it's one of those things that happen in the new year, figuring it out. Uh, but um, many of you, I've seen you um, on these calls previously, and I'd love to hear from you if you'd like to see them. Same, different, activated, whatever. But anyway, thank you everybody. Have a lovely day, afternoon, evening, sleep. Bye-bye, <laughs> bye-bye. <Marianne. Okay. laughs>